I'm going to introduce, uh, just to, for those of you who don't know, the Otleth Group. Um, the Otleth Group was established in 2002. Um, it's a collaboration between Kojo Ashen and Angelika Saga. Um, they're based in London, and their work emerges from traditions of the essay film and militant filmmaking, in, um, encompassing their celebrating moving image work and extending to writing, curatorial, and educational projects and installations of archival material. Their practice brings an expansive interest in science fiction and futurology with unresolved histories, particularly related to the global south. Um, they have a significant solo show coming up at Van Ava Museum later this year, uh, opening, I think, on the 25th of May. But they've also had uh, exhibitions at CASCO, uh, Office of Art, Design and Theory, at the showroom in London, um, and, and many others. Um, they've also been in a number of biennials, such as uh, recently Kochi Biennial. They're in the Bauhaus Imaginista project, which opens... Um, at the House of Couture on Develt, also uh, in, well, in March coming up, Guangzhou Biennial, and many others. Um, it's also wonderful to have Annie here, Annie Fletcher, who's the chief curator at the Van Abba Museum and uh, is literally at this moment finishing and moving to be the director of IMA in Dublin, which is a really exciting move. And um, uh, we will talk more about maybe a sneak and a question about museums later. Um, we're going to start with a few questions, and then um, we will open out for questions from the audience. Um, first of all, so in the Sonic Acts Festival Guide, uh, Julius Eastman is described as an Afrofuturist artist, a genius composer, and minimalist musician. How, would you agree with those descriptions, and how would you describe Eastman's work? And how do you understand his legacy now? I don't know which one of you wants to start. <laughs> you know, I think uh, the role of the African-American new music composer in the 20th century uh, always arrives to us as a kind of anomaly that we're used to African-American composers in the worlds of jazz, R&B, soul, uh, rock music, folk music, but composition, there always seems to be what um, Fred Moten calls a kind of uh, an oxymoron at the stake, at the heart of African-American composition. So we might be able to name certain names such as um, Anthony Davis or Donald Fox, or Julia Perry, or Terry Adkins, or Benjamin Patterson, but they are always somehow not at the center of the culture. Um, they are, they seem to be exceptions to the rule. And, um, and Eastman in some way falls into this category, but in some way he's an exception even to these exceptions. Um, um, so um, I think the terms uh, Afrofuturism, the terms of genius, the terms of minimal composer, they, they, they kind of reach towards what Eastman um, represents, but they don't really capture the kind of um, the uniquely disruptive capacity that Eastman brought to questions of uh, new music, 
to to the coherence of what we think of as uh, the Euro-American avant-garde um, and to what we think of as African-American music. He has this kind of, uh, this transgressive quality. He was both a consummate insider and at the same time a kind of outsider. Um, maybe um, Leroy Jones's uh, 1964 poem, Black Dada Nihilismus, that conveys an aspect of, of um, Eastman's role, that he was, he was both a consummate virtuosic figure, he was a composer, a vocalist, a pianist, an organist, um, uh, a composer, a leader of his own ensembles. At the same time, he was always um, uh, somehow cutting across any of those categories. Um, so I think, yeah, they begin to touch on on Eastman's role, but they don't really um, they don't really capture part of the part of the why Eastman I think has um, has captured so many people's imagination at this moment in time. Um, yes. I mean, it's difficult to talk. I mean, to the, the term Afrofuturism is extremely complex. So, I mean, I I don't see Eastman as a Afrofuturist as such. Um, I think he's. Uh, I think I see him as somebody who kept turning the expectations around and around and around, like the expectations of him as a composer. I mean, there's multiple gazes on him that also includes kind of like a kind of black um, conservative gaze as well, in a way. Uh, but there was this sense that he was um, just yeah, constantly turning this. I mean, you can see that in the introductory speech, that introduction that he gives, you know. Uh, the fact that he kind of politicizes his blackness is very interesting in relation to the new music scene, which was fine as long as he was composing and just composing. But bringing blackness into it was, uh, you know, created, um, isolated him in many ways. And he was, uh, you know, he was, and therefore, what does he do with that isolation? He turns it even more. He queers it even more. Um, he, he keeps, um, and for me, that is the most interesting aspect of Judas Eastman's work is this, and then, you know, and I think in, in the kind of sense that he was always, um, composing, composing, uh, not just in terms of uh, writing music, but also in terms of writing text. Can you talk, Anjali, a bit about why this work resonates for you both now? And you made the film in 2017, so what? Mm. What, how did that, how did it, how does it speak to that moment and, and to the now, to the present? I mean, hmm. The, at the time, uh, our good friend Mark Fisher had, uh, committed suicide and, uh, died. Died. And basically, I think making this work, um, was like a eulogy to him in a way. Um, but also there was this, 
sense that her, again, like in the introduction, the that Eastman gives, um, there was something in it that was prescient then and is prescient now um, that continues to be important um, in relation to the militancy of his... Uh, of the, of the speech, but also then of the music. I mean, the new music scene is extremely complex for black musicians and composers to be part of. It's a very exclusive scene and always has been. And I know that because I've been working in, I was working in the world of presenting um, experimental music in London uh, and working as a musician for many years. So. Uh, I, I mean, it's very interesting to have gone through that and then to uh, be faced with Eastman and his life um, and being able to make this work or around his work as such. Um, and to, I think, the, the, also the challenge of how to make visual his music um, was... Uh, was just a challenge for us that we wanted to um, explore. Uh, um, so, Julius Eastman died in 1990. You know, he died homeless in New York. And um, it, maybe it wasn't until about 2007 when um, one of his uh, colleagues and friends, a composer called Mary Jane Leach, she assembled all of the existing tape recordings of his music and released an album called Unjust Malaise, which is a anagram, a beautiful anagram of Julius Eastman. So during his life, um, despite composing a lot of work and appearing in a lot of ensembles, there was no album of his own music. So it's in only in 2007 that um, I heard his music in 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 detail. So Unjust Malaise is on YouTube. You can hear it. You can buy the CD, the triple CD. And so um, his music immediately haunted me. I mean, it just, it just, I just thought it was incredible. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I also couldn't believe that I'd never heard his music. I thought I knew about new music. I thought I knew about so-called minimalism. I just never heard anything like that. And I was kind of angry, actually outraged, and also scared that somebody's, that compositions that were so intense and so joyous and such a kind of ecstatic intensity could just disappear. It was kind of horrifying to me, and it is horrifying. Um, and in a way, uh, we were always thinking about what, how to respond to that work. Um, but it took a long time to work out um, a way of approaching it. I think I was intimidated by the forcefulness of his music. If you listen to this composition or, or the Holy Presence of Joan of Arc for 10 cellos, it's just phenomenal. It just comes roaring out. I think of this music as horses riding over your head. Just Im <laughs> imagine a fleet of horses galloping towards you and they just don't stop. They ride right over you. And then as they ride over, you stand up and start cheering. That's part of what Eastman makes me feel, mixed with this horror. So in a way, the horror of Mark Fisher's death 
and the horror of Trump's election and the accumulating horror of African-American male and female deaths at the hands of police. All of that, in a way, created a a feeling of anger, like just continuous anger. And and the idea of a a work that could respond to that work, uh, respond to those feelings, respond to those events, the continuous drumbeat of death, um, in a way, at a certain point, we realized that that maybe an Eastman composition would be a way to do that. So, I to me, Eastman's music now speaks to to the kind of what people call the afterlife of slavery. It speaks to that moment that we're in, in which the um, the violence visited on African American and Hispanic. Uh, queer people of color, that violence is not contingent and accidental. It's structural and in some way functional to the system. That kind of permanent exposure to violence and to death. Um, Eastman's militancy spoke to that. So we started thinking of Eastman's as, as as its own protest music, not hip hop not grime, but its own form of music. And so the more we thought about it, the more we thought we had to engage with it. And so I, I think that those are the reasons why um, Eastman's music just started mattering to us. It just became the matter at hand, a matter of life and death, actually. Can you talk a bit about um, how the work is kind of structured and uh, dramatized? Because it begins with, unfortunately, for those who haven't seen the full work, they wouldn't know that there's a speeches both at the beginning and at the end. Um, so it'd be nice to hear about those speeches, how they function, and how they relate to the the um, the uh, performance in the in the middle. I'll say a bit about that briefly. So. Um, at the beginning of the video, you see um, a poet and a researcher called Dante Michaud, and he gives a six-minute speech. And at the end of the video, you see a performer and composer called Elaine Michener, and she gives the same speech um, in very different styles. Um, and then in the middle, you see the four pianists, Rolf Hines, Zubin Kanga, Siwan Rees, and Eliza McCarthy. You see the four, comp- four pianists who perform Eastman's 1978 composition, Evil Nigger, for 23 minutes. No, 27 minutes. It's a 23-minute composition, but they play it for 27 minutes because that's take five that you see. So, um, so, and the speech that, that Dante starts with and Elaine finishes with is a speech that Julius Eastman himself gave on 16th January 1980, in Northwestern University in Evanston, outside Chicago. He was invited to to present uh, three of his compositions, uh, the composition Evil Nigger that you hear here, the composition Crazy Nigger, which you do not hear, and the composition Gay Gorilla that you don't hear. So there were four pianos on stage. Eastman is playing one of those pianos. And so there's been a controversy in the campus of Northwestern University, which at the time was a famously racist campus and Eastman had put posters of the concerts around the campus 
and some of the African-American students had complained because, those, because the inflammatory nature of the titles combined with the racist atmosphere on campus. And they were outraged by these titles. So, um, so there was a meeting and uh, Eastman agreed to take the posters down. So Eastman steps onto the stage, um, the Pick Steiger Concert Hall or Northwestern University, and he gives this six-minute speech in which he lays out his philosophy of music, and then he lays out his concepts of, uh, of the titles, like why. So, so we understand that he has a, a kind of economic understanding of the term nigger, and he has a, a militant understanding of the term gorilla. And these feed into a kind of, an, actually an unprecedented analysis of these terms. So this is 1980, it's before Reagan has not yet come into power, but he clearly is on the rise. Um, the Soviet Union uh, have occupied Afghanistan. Um, the Palestinian Liberation Organization are at war with the Israeli Defense Force. Um, Thatcher has come into power in Britain. So uh, what we now know is neoliberalism is resurgent. Popular authoritarianism is on the rise. And it's in this context that Eastman steps onto the stage and gives this six-minute speech and to absolute silence. People are like, what is this? He gives the speech, and then he sits down and then plays the performances. So um, inviting um, Dante and Elaine to speak those, um, it brings this element from the past because the idea of our video is that you know, when Eastman talks about the gay gorillas, he's talking about the future. He, he, he says gaydom doesn't have the courage yet of Afghani gorillas or PLO gorillas, but uh, he hopes that it will. And in a way, that the idea of the video is that the four pianists, they are the gay gorillas from 37 years into Eastman's future. So the, the composition calls to the future and we are in his future. And they have come not to Eastman, but to us, because we need courage. The idea is that we ourselves, that's to say you, that's to say us, that's to say spectators, listeners, audiences, we need courage and fortitude and perseverance for the struggles that we are in right now. So in a way, the idea is that they've come to train us in concentration and focus and, and a certain kind of uh, intensity. Um, and so this is the idea. They come from Eastman's future to speak to us. So we think, in a way, we think of the, the, we think of the video as a kind of training film to bring us up to scratch for the wars that we have to fight. Angeli, perhaps you can talk about how um, how it was staged, like the aesthetic decisions, how you filmed it. Um, there's a poem by Eastman, uh, which I'll just read quickly. Light streams through the darkness, opening the caves. Light, sorrow. Light cannot shine where no light is. Truth is light and darkness. More light, more light, more light more light. Light is not darkness. It's from Julius Eastman notes in the score for the moon's silent modulation from 1970. 
Um, you know, one has to remember that uh, Julius Seisman comes from an esoteric Christian background, like a liturgical background. Um, so this sense of uh, light has a, you know, a kind of multiple meanings, like in terms of, uh, you know, the idea of uh, enlightenment as such, and, you know, um, and this idea of, you know, wanting to scramble out of the platonic cave into the light. Um, but there's also, so for us, this uh, sense of light and darkness, yeah, we wanted to, um, I suppose, highlight these ideas by making the darkness darker and making the light light, lighter in the film. Um, the sense that, um, so we use the literally the kind of black surface, like my shoes, like the black shiny surface of the piano and worked with this um, lighting rig that actually the idea of it comes from another film that we made on Don Cherry and the, and the Cadona project, um, where we used this LED light system that would reflect uh, onto the pianos, two baby grand pianos. This, in a way, created like a protective, um, invisible, not cage, but let's say an invisible aura, uh, or a visible aura like, of refracted light around the musicians and around Eastman's composition. Um, what is not present in the fact that we have two people front-ending and back-ending the work, this also for us was protective, but what isn't present is the fact that more people can say those words. Um, so I, th I think what we wanted to almost do was kind of create like this stage this uh, um, all of these these um, ideas uh, but through these through these uh, camera angles in a way so the camera angles cap capture all these different uh, as you can see they capture all these different uh, lines of light um, in a way which I kind of think has a quite spiritual uh, futuristic spiritual um, sense to it. Um, and also, you know, when Glissant, Edouard Glissant talks about opacity, opacity isn't a state of uh, opaqueness. Opacity shines light back, um, shines a different light back. Um, so I think, you know, to go to this idea of a struct the, the structure of feeling, as Raymond William talks about it, a structure of feeling. I think this was very much what we were trying to create here, like to produce strange feelings, to produce a new state, a new sensibility around Eastman's work. I'm going to bring Annie in here um, because uh, there's an upcoming exhibition at Fenab Museum called Xenogenesis. Is that right? Title? That's right. Um, so... Annie, perhaps you want to say 
Sure. I mean, I just loved watching this again this morning. It's uh, for all of those reasons, like this incredible feeling of the call to order, this incredible feeling of um, energy, of course, discipline, um, intensity, as you said. And we're going to end the whole exhibition. So it's a, an exhibition with 10 rooms with this work. And I think we did this really consciously, right? As that moment where you maybe are calling to order the the gay gorilla to come or the evocation of new possibility. And this, I think, I mean, it, it, to me, this piece, of course, brings to mind so much of what you're thinking about in relation to not only, you know, um, how he brilliantly enunciates the kind of racialized regimes of representation already and, and combats them or, uh, or refuses them. And this kind of disruptive nature, I think, that is shot through the whole show in so many ways. Um, it's going to be a show that we're, I think uh, um, Kojo said so beautifully, it's not a survey, it's not a retrospective, we're calling it a cross-section, a kind of an exploration. What would it be if we put these things together? So I'm kind of very excited by the idea that that intense moment is what sort of throws you out of the exhibition at the end. Um, and it will be a, a project that will uh, pretty much look at the last, uh, from 2011 to now. Very, uh, I, again, what's so exciting about what... Um, Koji and Anjali are doing, I think, is this, um, that there's a, ref, a sort of a refuting of this comprehensiveness of subjectivity. Um, and the whole idea of xenogenesis, and again, I think you can both talk much more beautifully about it than I, but is an evocation from, from, um, and, and the title of a trilogy from Octavia Butler. And it's really, us trying to think about this idea of a generative alienation, a generative becoming something else. Um, but something that, again, as we said, refuses uh, the old regimes, refuses the toxicity of, of um, yeah, of what we've already produced and, and tries to search for something new. Um, so I think on that level, it's uh, this, this, this project is so um, evocative and exciting in relation to that. I'm, think, I'm aware of time, so I'm thinking it might be good to see if there's any questions uh, in the audience. Hi. Um, yeah, thanks for a beautiful session and a beautiful sharing of beautiful material. Um, I want to ask just basic sort of musicological questions, because I'm not at all familiar with new music uh, personally. And um, I'm interested just to know what perhaps within the context of new music was particular in Julius Eastman's cadence or rhythm, or I don't know even what the terms are. I mean, the only thing that I sort of gained from watching this presentation was the sense in which the hands were kind of picked up like claws, like it sort of physiognomically did something to the players to kind of claw at the keyboard in this in this sort of strange way. So I'm just interested to hear more about what was particular about the music itself. I think uh, Dante and Delaine, I just recently had a conversation with them about this and uh, we were talking about the, we did a podcast with them actually, which is going to come out, but we were talking a lot about this uh, Julius Eastman's uh, compositions. Um, I mean, I would suggest listening to as many as you can that are uh, on Unjust Malays. Um, uh, but I think one, I mean, he is a composer, right? So he's playing with time. Um, he's working with time. Um, he's also setting almost like a challenge to musicians and one, because they're difficult pieces to play. And there is a sense that Eastman knows that uh, there won't be that many black musicians, maybe that will be able to, that will be, 
not that they won't be, be able to, but they won't be many, there won't be many that will play his music. Um, some people said to us, for instance, why didn't you have uh, African-American or Africa, um, black British musicians playing this? And actually, um, it's not that, uh, you know, pianists don't exist, but, well, number one, it was, it was hard to find four pianists that could all play, um, uh, this piece. And also, uh, who had been working together for enough time. So it would have meant finding some, some African American or black British pianists or black European pianists and then putting together for a couple of years to play this because that's how challenging it is. Um, but I think the, uh, the, the, Eastman does set this challenge to musicians. Are you going to be able to play this piece? It's a physical test. I mean, these, these, uh, musicians are like gymnasts. They are like Olympic kind of, uh, gymnasts. I mean, they played this, uh, piece six to seven times over the, over two days. And it's a hard piece to play for 27. The composure, you can see is it's the hands are just like typewriter they're almost typing you know and they look like these biomorphic forms like stabbing the piano i mean the militancy is there in the in the in the composition you can hear it it's horses but it's also like i don't know it's also like hailstones or again there is something kind of like esoteric in the in the, in the, in the way the music is written. If you listen to the holy presence of Joan of Arc as well, you're listening, um, to something that comes from beneath, definitely. I mean, I think, um, you can't avoid a kind of, uh, allegory of the chromatic black keys and the diatonic white keys. You can't help but play out that stark opposition between chromatic and diatonic, between black and white, you can't help but transpose that into a racial allegory. Um, and in a certain way, um, once we realized that we would work with these four pianos, these four pianists who are the... Um, in the UK, they are the greatest living interpreters of Eastman's music. Um, Zubin Kanga, he said maybe 23 people can play Eastman in the UK. Undoubtedly, that's different in the US, but we were in the UK, specifically in London. So once you realize that, then in a way we decided to, um, to press into that, that ready, the ready-made racial allegory that the piano brings um and that allegory is is that allegory is simultaneously an allegory about tonality so eastman eastman's music plays on a relation between um the racial the tonal and the spiritual and that's continually refigured in his music um and you know as the music goes on um uh all of the ecstatic intensity drops away it starts subtracting uh, it starts um, diminishing it becomes more pointillist um, 
and uh, Eastman created a particular kind of uh, notation to describe and to map this kind of arc. And there is a, a particular kind of um, tonal challenge that he sets. Um, and, you know, when you compare his work to um, Steve Reich or to Philip Glass or to, you know, John Adams or to Meredith Monk, it's clear that Eastman is maybe not necessarily a minimalist at all. You know, that's what people called him because the term minimalism has a prestige. So in a way, people thought they were elevating Eastman by calling him a minimalist. But what if he isn't at all? You know, you might call him a maximalist. Um, you, you know, there were different terms, but I think of him as a, as a certain kind of ecstatic music. In a way, I think of it as a new sacred music. I think that's Eastman was 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 trying to elevate what he called black forces. Uh, and that was his term, black forces, which is a certain kind of spiritual and energetic impulse. And, and they were being manifested in this movement between the racial, the tonal, and the spiritual. And that's continually playing out from, from the moon silent modulation that Anjali quoted right through to the end of his life in 1990, where he's at the end of his life, he's writing works like Hail Mary and Buddha. So then the, the, the kind of the, the, pan, the pan-spiritualist impulse in his music takes form. Um, so I think those are some of the things at stake. Uh, and, and when you listen to Unjust Malays, that becomes clear that that's part of the project to create a kind of, a, yeah, a kind of a new, a new music that, that enhances black forces, that charges them, and that invites people into them because they are already there inside of America. You know, in fact, America is nothing but, you know, American music is, is, is a kind of continual negation and incorporation of black forces, you know. Uh, okay, there's lots more to say, but I'll stop there. I, I was wondering whether you could talk, because um, yesterday in Ramon Amaro's talk, he ended with a, a kind of looking at abstraction in relation to questions of identity. So I was wondering if one or both of you could, I know it's something you've talked to me about in the past, so. I think uh, the question of abstraction relates very well to the, the project that we've embarked on with Annie. Uh, I think I'd like to relate this question of abstraction to the question of xenogenesis. Xenogenesis is a term formulated by the African-American science fiction writer Octavia Estelle Butler. It's the, it's the name for the trilogy of books that she wrote uh, at the end of the 1980s. Uh, Dawn from 1987, um, Adulthood Rights from 1988, and Imago from 1989. So uh, these are three novels which um, rethink the, the, the relation between humans and aliens. So xenogenesis translates as, out, you know, outside becoming, xeno outside, genesis becoming, or becoming outside, but you could also say alien becoming or becoming alien. So if you take these as a diagram of forces and processes, 
then the question of abstraction relates to this because the question of abstraction relates to um, the necessity to undo the given, to undo the given image of what the human is, and to, um, in a in a way, to 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 find a way to get in touch with that which is not human within the human, that which is inhuman within the human, whether you want to call that the drives, if you are, you know, if you're a Freudian or a Lacanian, you could call that the drives, but Octavia Butler calls that the Zeno. So the, the Zeno is that which is outside the human, but inside it. Um, and of course, uh, in the in kind of philosophical terms, the notion of the black, the Negro, is that which is outside the human. So the figure of the black person is that figure which opens uh, the genre of the human. That's to say race. What is race? Race is a genre. This is Sylvia Winter's notion. Race is a genre of the human in which the human generates, continually generates that which is supposed to be outside the human, which then disturbs what we think of as the human. So it, it's, this, it's this complex relation in which the question of race opens out onto the question of what it is to be human, what it is to be a being, and what it is to become human, and what it is to become a being. So the question of race and the question of human immediately opens out onto the questions of ontology, and ontogenesis between being and becoming. And the question of ontogenesis leads us to the question of xenogenesis. And abstraction is a vector, it's a line, it's a way of getting in touch with those forces, forces which are there all the time, but need to be summoned, invoked, nurtured, and cared for. Uh, so in a way, it requires a practice to become outside or to or to open to the outside that is already you there is a practice that's required and the sonic sonic practices are as good as any other i think um you could also apply the idea of a practice to kind of the um advedanta yoga sutra kind of philosophy around you know consciousness and all of that but that's a whole other thing um I think of generative alienation and the practice of generative alienation as also a kind of a practice of mutation um, or a practice of becoming mutants, which happens, where does it happen? And I think one, when one begins to realize that uh, the inner city is, you know, a place like London, which was uh, where Kojo and I were both born, um, where one could have time to think and become mutant and practice being um, alienated as such, you realize that this gives birth to an aesthetic. This gives birth to a series of uh, refusals. Um, you can find a way to protect your refusal through creating a practice. When you begin to realize that uh, that you know, one's socialization, one's political socialization, one's ontology is completely under threat now. Uh, where you know, one's it's it starts with Windrush. They've revoked the citizenship of this young woman. Will they revoke our citizenship? 
you know, I mean, these are scary, upsetting, depressing times. Um, I would never have begun, I would never have imagined this would happen in the UK, um, where, you know, we might, we might lose our citizenship, or, I mean, I can't even bear to think about it, but, you know, where this threat exists, which is, you know, this awful Sadiq Khan is kind of like, you know, propagating. So you begin to realize that this, um, this history of uh, diasporic uh, aesthetics are being um, actually eroded. Uh, in some cases, and, you know, Britain, uh, places like, I mean, every place has them, but I would say in the UK there was a, definite exposure of those practices um, on television, on in, in, in literature and in music, not so much in art necessarily in the, in the, um, um, you know, in the 70s or, you know, 60s, but they're de or the 80s that began with the black arts movement, these movements began, began to be kind of documented, I suppose, and, and presented, but you know, certainly one begins to realize that this, that, you know, your history is being destroyed. And because Kojo and I have always been very interested and always felt that we needed to, this idea of passing on. Um, Dante, again, we had this conversation recently about um, how does queer black presence get passed on? How does queer, queer black culture get passed on? because there's no uh, children, or as he said, we don't give birth to children, so, you know, I mean, he said that. <laughs> um, but he's, so there's this sense that, you know, this is a history that could die. How does it get passed on, you know? How do, and Kojo and I have been very um, determined in our work as curators to present the work of other artists, um, you know, because there is a sense that also, like in the 80s and in the 90s, there was a huge amount of uh, support, or let's say there was a lobby for support, public funding for black art movements. That's all been taken away, uh, more or less. So, I did want to fit in a last question to Annie. Um, as a, <laughs> as, a um, as someone who works in museums, in a way this uh, morning is called setting the record straight. So I was just wondering, since we have you here, if you could give us also a, a response to that in terms of what's the responsibility and role of the museum, what's the challenge, uh, what can a museum do? <laughs> Big question, great I know, question, but a quick... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's amazing. One of the things I feel really happy about is as I'm leaving the museum that I'm accompanied by these two amazing artists in the last show I'm doing there, and that show is going to come to Emma. And I feel like all of the questions that they're bringing to the table are completely uh, um, vital to, to, to us understanding the potential, again, um, of, of the museum space um, beyond its classic modernist violent um, a strident sort of uh, um, position um, as a kind of epistemological gatekeeper and as we said a kind of a very white institution and one that absolutely um, excluded um, um, many many others so I think it's it's all of that potential and we've had a really great conversation about the idea of the exhibition as a trap 
as a set of expectations and behaviors and how one can play with that. So it's, I think the potential of the museum is to understand all of those structures and to think, what now? What next? So uh, it's a very propositional project, and I really do mean that. I feel like I will take the lessons from Xenogenesis very much on um, um, to to the next museum because I think it does exactly what Eastman is doing, exactly what we're talking about, understanding the terms and the nature of the, the call to order and the fight ahead. Good to hear. <laughs> we're going to move on now to uh, Emma. What are you kind of, I'm going to say a big thank you to yeah. all three of you. <laughs>